And thank you, David, for that wonderful reading. Good morning, everyone. Um, I am massively encouraged this morning. I'm, I hope to encourage you too. I believe that's what the Lord wants to do. I will be massively encouraged too. If uh, would anyone like to come and sit slightly closer? I feel like you know the school teacher. Um, lean in, lean in. Come on, come on, come on, guys at the back. Come on, come on, come on. No, please, guys, guys. That's you. Come on, come on, come forward. Please, please, please. Thank you, thank you, Liz Ord. Bit of leadership, bit of leadership. Please, more than one person. I'm not going to preach till you do. Thank you very much. Maybe, maybe that'll keep you staying back, actually. Andrew and Wendy, bless you. You were only in the third row, but you've come to the first. Fantastic. It takes more of a mindset shift for the people at the very back to come to the very front. The reason I'm doing this is because I want this sense of a cohort together, that we are, we are God's people and we stand together in the word. I'm not saying people at the back have checked out, of course, but, but it feels good to me when you're close. If you want to stay at the back, by the way, and at the back praying, I've seen that done so brilliantly. When I go to my uh, wonderful gatherings with John Eldridge, he has people standing at the back who just pray throughout the whole thing. In fact, they're invisible to everyone inside. They just stand behind screens and pray. And it's absolutely sensational. And you can sense the power of God at work. So uh, you can do that as well. So if you're in the back, please pray. Um, I... Someone prayed this morning when we gathered uh, in the vestry before the church service that, um, that, that, that I, Mike, would uh, be, as well as preaching, would be guided by the Spirit of God in what he wanted to say this morning. That's always a dangerous prayer. So, so here goes. I, as I was driving in this morning, I drove the 400 yards from my house. God, I was a bit late. As I was driving in this morning, I was massively encouraged to think of a few things. Uh, and, and, it, and it went something like this. Um, around the world today, uh, something like a billion people will rise to God in prayer uh, and in praise. Around a billion people. And it sometimes feels a bit oppressive to be just us. Uh, much though I love you, and I do, um, we, we are relatively small in number, and we're smaller now than we were four or five years ago. We've, I think we suffered a little bit from our times with, with, with no, no, uh, nothing against these wonderful people who've kept leadership during the, during the interregnums. But during these vacancies, it's been a little bit difficult, hasn't it? We've had two and a half years of vacancy out of five. Sometimes I look around Christchurch and I think, I, I think I remember five years ago, seven years ago, when you couldn't get in at Sunday at 9.30. Now it's a little bit. There's quite a few empty seats. I'm just thinking, you know what, we, are we a bit, a bit smaller, a bit smaller, but the church of God isn't. The church of God is not smaller. The church of God, with all its banners flying and all the people of the living God, we are, we are strong. This is big. This is big. And I thought, I, I, if it's a Sunday morning tradition to go to church, then who's in our time zone? And I thought it would be people in Portugal, there would be people in Ghana. Um, but then I also thought, yeah, it's going to be people in Singapore and Southeast Asia in evening worship. I worshipped at 4 p.m. last time I was in Singapore. I think just all over the world, people are, and America has yet to wake up, people are lifting up their voices in prayer. And then I was massively encouraged to walk in this morning and first of all find my old friends Kit and Lundy Fields in from the United States. It's wonderful to have you back and your son-in-law, uh, son-in-law and daughter. It's great to see you. I saw Andrew and Wendy who are now around the churches in Winchester leading in the intercession work and uh, can speak massively and God's been speaking massively to you about what he intends to do not just in Winchester but in the whole country which is a great encouragement. And then in walks my old friend Andrew Chua and Pastor Jeff from Singapore. Jeff, you're very welcome. It's wonderful to have you here. And what Andrew tells you has been happening in your church is just thrilling, thrilling, thrilling. So thank you for coming. And uh, we all stand together, and all of us who come each week and live in Winchester, 
and we all stand together and we all receive this morning great encouragement from God because our, our hearts need building up. I've shared from this place before that the word encouragement comes from cœur and the French for heart and to be discouraged is to lose heart and there is nothing worse than to lose heart. That is what the enemy would do for us and it is the opposite of God's intent. God's intention for us is to build up our hearts and he will do that this morning he will do that this morning through this magnificent psalm. Um, by the way, um, just before I begin, uh, if you haven't yet seen the movie Darkest Hour, please watch it. It is absolutely sensational, even if you're not into history. Um, it is absolutely sensational. It's the story of Churchill standing effectively alone at the start of, uh, the, of the Second World War. Um, just at the time when the British troops felt like they weren't going to exit from Dunkirk and it, it, that plan hadn't been hatched. And he stood alone, not just against the Nazi menace, but against um, many forces in our own country who wanted to sue for peace at any price. Of course, the word peace is very, uh, is very beguiling, because we want peace. But Churchill realized, as we all know from our history, that, that, that peace would have entailed actually not peace at all, but subjugation. So this was not a time to roll over. This was a time to stand up and fight. But he, he was absolutely, in this depiction, I don't know how accurate it is, but it's pretty accurate, he was completely alone. And if you ever feel alone, it was just his wife basically stood for him and a few key players, um, but not very many. Anthony Eden, the war minister, and about that was about it. And um, it was tough. And it's a story of how he turned that around and stood against in, 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 apparently insuperable odds to face down, uh, eventually, of course, to lead the facing down over five years and then the reinvasion of, of, of Europe and, and then the liberation the liberation of Europe and of the world. An extraordinary tale, a man with an extraordinary uh, story in the history of humanity. Um, and we're called to stand like that. We're called to stand like that. And sometimes you will be in a Churchill place. You personally will be in a Churchill place. You will look around and it will all look dark in your particular place, your place of work or your family or your community. Where you will look around, it'll look dark. And you'll think, I'm standing alone. But you know what? We are enough. As Shakespeare says, we are enough. We're enough to do the kingdom proud because we have the power of the living God within us. And you're to be hugely encouraged this morning, and I stand with you, brothers and sisters. Wherever you stand, I stand with you this morning, and we stand together, which is why I wanted people at the front not to make a point, but because just that sense of together, we are companions in this great journey. Amen? It is a most beautiful piece of poetry, Psalm 103. I'm not going to cheat you out of the word this morning because it is absolutely stunning. I, um, in fact, Claire and I, uh, I, didn't, I didn't ask Claire, she remembers this. We went on holiday um, many, many years ago. In fact, I know exactly when it was. It was 27 years ago because we married for four years. We went on holiday to a Greek island and we met a couple there. Um, and this, the, the guy, uh, Andrew Ditty, has become a lifelong friend of mine. Uh, Northern Irishman. Please pray for Andrew. He has motor neurone disease. He's so far exceeded his life expectancy by five years and is going on. Uh, was an amazing exec in the city of London working for BP. He's now um, obviously retired from that work, but continues as this great and strong believer, even though he finds it hard to speak now and is in a wheelchair. But he is healed and will return. Great man. And uh, he, uh, I remember it took us, it took Andrew and I about five minutes on a walk along the beach happily to discover that we were brothers in Christ. And, uh, and, and the four of us sat well, on this following morning, which is a Sunday morning, we just said we wanted to sit around the word and Andrew brought to us Psalm 103. And he said, look, it is just the greatest psalm. But I didn't really know it at the time, but he said, look, it is the greatest psalm. It has the greatest encouragement. So um, 
I'm grateful for him this morning that this psalm has sat with me for 27 years, and I finally get the chance to speak on it. Thank you, Brian. And it is all about the transcendence and majesty of the God who is our Father and Lord and life. It is, for those of you who like structure, and you're right to like the structure of Scripture because all of it is intentional, this psalm is in two halves, and each half has a block of verses, then a single verse, and then another block. So it goes block, verse, block, and then block, verse, block. So it's written like that. It's written as, as two halves of a page, if you like. Um, and we're going to bias towards the first half of, uh, of the psalm, although there is obviously deep power in both. And following the structure will help it yield, I think, the beauty and deep insight that it seeks to into the character and power of the living God. The first block is verses 1 to 5, and it begins, David begins with this beautiful and heartfelt cry of praise. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. This establishes from the get-go that this psalm will be about praise and worship, about honoring a mighty and transcendent God. And King David addresses directly his soul and what he calls his inmost being. And this is going to be all about a very personal interaction with God, which, of course, is very typical of King David, the man after God's own heart. But it's not exclusive to him. We can have also ourselves that very personal interaction. And he goes on to adjure his soul, forget not all his benefits, forget not all the benefits of God. And he lists six. And he lists six benefits. And we should note that only one of these is about sin. Mm. Now, I say that because there is a tendency to think of Psalm 103 as being just about sin and forgiveness, and it is about sin and forgiveness, and thank heaven it is. However, it is about more. And if this morning you are laboring under any oppression of any sort, physical, mental, spiritual oppression of any sort, God will heal that. God will heal that. He wants nothing more than for you to be released into the fullness and the power of who you are in him to bring his kingdom. It is only through your kingdom and your queendom that his kingdom will come. He has no other way. It is only through us. That is his choice. We are his people. This is what he wants to say to us through, our, through his psalm this morning. The, 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 the initial release of forgiveness is just that. It is an initial release. It is an essential prerequisite. We cannot walk with God unless we know our forgiveness. He has established that, and it's for sure, and it's given. But we have to go beyond that. If we don't go beyond forgiveness, we stay as a forgiven sinner. We go no further. We go no further. You're ready to be a star in the firmament. Do not hold back. God wants to say to us this morning, do not hold back. Forget not all his benefits, says David. He's saying here, verse 2, I do forgive your sins. I do forgive your sins. And then, verse 3, I forgive all your sins. Forgiveness and total forgiveness. We're not to think that some things are beyond him. We're not to think, I can never forgive myself. We're not to think, God can never forgive this thing that I've done. We're not to think, I've been the worst of all people. That is just not true. And even if you have, God forgives the worst of all people too, if that person turns to him. Even Adolf Hitler would have been totally forgivable and perhaps was. Who knows? Who knows if Adolf Hitler turned to Jesus at the last moment? Who knows? But even the worst 
of human beings imaginable. And how dare I compare myself to any human being? Because I am the worst imaginable. I've sinned. I've fallen short of God's glory. But we can all be forgiven. We can all be forgiven. That forgiveness is extended to the whole world, the whole of humanity, today and always. But David moves on quickly. The second part of verse 3 I heal all your diseases. I heal all your diseases. This is not just about forgiveness. You may this morning be absolutely right with God, but your body is not well. Your body is not well. And he says, I heal all your diseases. I attend to everything you need, to everything that might keep you from me and from enjoying the life that I bring to you, which is incomparable to any other, which is life in all its fullness, John 10.10. I bring you life in all its fullness. It is not my intention for you that you be sick this morning. I bring you life in all its fullness. And verse 4a, he redeems my life from the pit. He redeems my life from the pit. No matter the depths to which I've sunk in the mire, I am redeemed. I am redeemed and restored. He sees me struggling in a pit or a swamp, or perhaps as Bunyan would have it, the slough of despond. And he redeems me. And redeems, as probably most of you know, is to pay the price. Like you redeem something at a pawn shop. You go, you pay its value, and you bring it back. He pays for us, and he brings us back. And verse 4b, you are not only redeemed to be you again, but redeemed to be a greater you than you dreamed possible. He crowns us with love and compassion. He crowns us. He crowns us because we're kings and queens. He crowns us with love and compassion. These two are attributes to God himself, as the bard famously said. These two are attributes to God himself. And they suggest that we are now to be outward looking. We are to show love and compassion. We have received mercy. We are now to show it to the world. That is our anointing. And not only that, the crown proves that we are equipped to show it. The crown proves that we are equipped to show it. Because we're not just equipped, we're champions. We're kings and queens. So we are champions of compassion and love. And then verse 5a, he satisfies our desires. This is Psalm 37. Um, he gives us the desires of our hearts. He gives us the desires of our hearts. He satisfies the desires. I actually love the word satisfies. It's clearer than the Psalm 37 version. Psalm 37, although it's utterly beautiful, he gives us the desires of our hearts. We seem to think, it's almost like, oh, does that mean I can have anything I want? Surely that can't be scriptural. Well, it's not like that. He places these desires in our hearts in the first place, and then he fulfills them. So our whole life is a journey of moving to God to have our godly desires fulfilled. That's what's so beautiful. That's this calling and responding and calling and responding. If you want to see calling and responding, go to Gospel of John, first chapter, after the great prologue, when Jesus caught the John points disciples to Jesus, future disciples, and they go to follow Jesus. Jesus turns around and calls them, and they call to him, and he calls to them, and they go. It's a beautiful dynamic, and that's what it's like for us. He gives us desires of our hearts that bring us to him, and then he satisfies them. He satisfies our desires. This beautiful conversation that I have with God, whose own name, by the way, is I am. So what is my I am as part of his I am? And then finally, verse 5b, sustainability, right? Sustainability, verse 5b. My youth is renewed like the eagles. This is Isaiah chapter 40, of course. Isaiah chapter 40, even news grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise up on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. If you haven't seen Chariots of Fire, that great movie, watch that because it's thrilling when Eric Little preaches that on the Sunday morning in Paris, rather than running, and then he runs two days later and gets his goal. Whew, enough of that, but beautiful. Mm. 
So the whole wonder of this set of five verses, this is block one, is this message. It is not all about having my sins forgiven. It is about having my sins forgiven, and this is sensational. But it is a prerequisite to fuller life in God. That is all it is. Our relationship with God goes so much further than that. We can be healed, redeemed to greater life, crowned as princes and princesses, kings and queens. We can be on purpose and daily renewed with strength. So, on to the salient verse. Now, so it goes block, verse, block. The salient verse of the first half is verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Why is this verse here? Now, I hadn't noticed this. It's a great thing about preaching. Is that when I had to prepare, I see new things in Scripture. I don't know if you get that when you study the Scripture, but it suddenly struck me as being really out of place because the psalm is all about me and God. And why suddenly do we have this thing that feels like social commentary, right? The law works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. And, and, and I'm, I'm thrilled he does, but sort of what's it doing in there? And then... I found the answer, at least I think it's the answer, which is the key to the whole psalm, which is, the oppressed is me. The oppressed is me, and is you. We are the oppressed. Now, bear with me, don't think I'm just countering what I just said. We are the oppressed to begin with, because we are children of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one, 1 John 5. That means we're oppressed. So many of us find ourselves living under daily oppression of one kind or another, These voices that say to us, it's not worth it, it's futile, you're standing alone, you can't do this. All that stuff, that's spiritual oppression. That's spiritual oppression. And now God says, we get, we get, I get righteousness and justice right where I am. So righteousness, if you look at those two words, righteousness, that's that's that wonderful righteousness of God. The righteousness from God, Romans 3. You remember Luther's great awakening? He sees we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And then he reads... But now a righteousness from God's revealed. And he goes, oh, no, that's the last thing I need when I'm feeling so rubbish. I mean, the last thing I need is God's righteousness. It's just going to make me feel worse. And then he suddenly realizes what God's saying and what Paul's saying in Romans 3. This is a righteousness from God given to us. It's not God's righteousness held up to make us feel crap. This is God's righteousness given to us so that we now have the righteousness of God. So God says in Psalm 103, way a 100,000 years before Paul, don't worry. Don't worry, I know that you feel unrighteous, but guess what? You are now righteous. I pronounce you righteous. I speak you righteous. In the beautiful pigeon translation of the Bible, those of you who've been to the South Pacific, it's beautifully written, God, he spick him all right. Spelt O-L-R-I-T-E. God, he spick him all right. He pronounces us righteous. That's what we have this morning. That's what we have this morning. And then justice, and this is back to Psalm 37 again. No coincidence, the psalmist does, does this. So he's gone twice to 37. He's gone back to 37. He says, the justice of our cause will shine like the noonday sun. This is about vindication. This is where the world has not understood us, but we are proved to be right after all. Our stance or our actions were justified. A huge thing for all of us who've labeled, labored under misunderstanding or injustice or oppression. And I'm going to say that probably everyone in this church has had that at some stage at some stage, probably fairly recently, and you probably wouldn't use such grandiose words as oppression or injustice, because you think, well, actually, I live in Winchester or, or, or somewhere fairly nice, like sort of Florida or Singapore, right? Yeah, I live somewhere nice. 
I'm okay. I've got money. I'm okay. I'm okay. I've got good education for my kids. I'm not oppressed. But actually, what we labor under every day, if we're not careful, is absolutely debilitating. So if you felt absolutely exhausted and just ready to chuck the towel in, that's probably what you're experiencing. And God says to you this morning, beyond forgiveness, beyond forgiveness, I give you righteousness and justice. So all of you who stood, all of you who stood in your places, in your places of work and in your communities and in your families and in tough places, and you've stood for Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you. And Jesus says, today you are righteous and you have vindication for everything that you've stood for. And this will all come back to you and will be counted, will be counted as righteousness. And then block two, verses seven to 12. Um, I just want to skip through this, but I, I, I want you to hear it because it's so beautiful. And then we'll, we'll, we'll pretty much stop there. Verse seven, he's made his ways known to Moses and deeds to his people. History, track record, predictability, reliability, a great blessing for all of us. He's always been like this. We are his people. We are his people, and he's always made his ways known to the de- and his deeds to his people since Moses' time. This is indeed for you and me. We are in that history. Verse 8, the nature of God, perhaps the most beautiful verse in the whole thing. He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Ah, just take that in for one minute. He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. What a God we have. This is what theologians call his loving kindness. His loving kindness. Our childish image of him as some kind of chiding head teacher. Nothing against head teachers, will Banish this forever. Let's lose that forever. Nothing could be further from the truth. Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse nor harbor his anger in sharp contrast to our judgmental nature. Actually, ironically, the one who has the, who has perfection as a judge, the one perfect judge in the world, in the universe, does not by nature judge. <laughs> Isn't that great? He does, he, the perfect judge actually holds back on judgment. Well, actually, he doesn't. He judges us righteous through Jesus. That's another discussion. But the point is, He doesn't always accuse, and nor does he harbor his anger. And we do not, verse 10, get what we deserve, and thank heaven for that. So many people ask for justice. The great great writer of the early part of the last century, Dorothy L. Sayers, points out we really don't want justice, actually. We really don't want justice. At least we don't want to be judged on our performance, honestly. right? So be careful when we ask for justice. But then we have the two most stunning verses of the whole psalm, 11 to 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that stunning? In poetic language, the psalmist tells us, God's love is so all-consuming, it obliterates our sin. His love to our sin is like the stars to the earth, just infinitely more powerful, overwhelming, overwhelming in its power. Our sin is just, it's gone, it's nothing. It shrivels up into nothing. His love overwhelms us. 
You see, sins or transgressions, as it's rendered here, have a habit of clinging to us. And the psalmist himself says this in Psalm 51, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This is their power to separate us from God. Satan, the enemy of God and of our souls, chose that separation for himself, and he wants nothing more than for us to join him in it. So like the white witch in Narnia with Edmund, he tempts us first and then uses our fall to shame us and to deepen the rift. And there's this horrible spiral and one that's accounted for so many good men and women. But God blows all this away. He removes our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Wonderfully, as I was writing this talk, I was flying from Bangkok to London. And I thought, it's a long way from the east to the west. It was 12 hours on a jet airliner. And that was our great verse back in Greece 27 years ago. I remember receiving it that morning and thinking, that is the most sensational thing in my life. How does he do this great thing? The answer is, of course, Jesus himself does it. Some of our most profound and brilliant theology uh, is distilled into great hymns and songs. They don't all get it right, of course, but when they do the simplicity, it blows your mind. Um, I was thinking, uh, as I wrote this, of the great hymns, and can it be? that I have gained an interest in my Savior's blood. Praise my soul, the King of heaven, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Remember the words of the great theologian, Karl Barth, the great Swiss theologian, who asked, what was the most profound truth you have ever heard? Replied, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And the song I have in mind this morning goes like this, and we all know it because we all sing it here. He took all my guilt and shame when he died and rose again. Now today he reigns in heaven and earth exalted. See, in this simple verse, that is the threefold work of Christ. His death, or as St. Patrick calls it, his death on cross for my salvation. His resurrection, and with it new life for us and the assurance of eternity. And his glorious ascension and the rule that allows him to exercise a love and a compassion that dwarfs the power of sin. And the, just as the majesty of the stars dwarfs the spinning ball of the earth. And then take it home and read the second half. Read the second half. We've no time to do it justice, but it's all about that transcendent power. The God who reigns is compassionate, understanding, and powerful. And what a magnificent combination. Just skip through it. Verse 13, a loving father with his children. He is compassionate with us. Verse 14, he knows all our frailties and doesn't blame us for them. Verses 15 and 16, we are transitory, ephemeral beings in this life. But he is from everlasting to everlasting. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Verse 17, the second salient verse, the the pair with verse 6. Verse 17 says, verse 17 says, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. He is alive and reigning. So taken together, the two salient verses, just let's do that, read, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Why don't we close there? Has there ever been a more encouraging statement than that? We have righteousness, we have vindication, and where does it come from? It comes from the ruler of all who will never be usurped and never be unseated. He will, ne- no, not like our prime ministers, he will never be usurped. He will never be unseated. 
Small wonder that David closes with this great statement of majesty, enabled by the great and mighty angels and the countless armies of heaven. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. So if today you are troubled by a spirit of worthlessness or despondency or despair or guilt or shame, or how can I carry on, or is this all there is? then know that he is for you and he longs to take you back, that he redeems you and gives you the place of honor, that however strongly you may feel that you do not deserve it, that he has the power and the will to establish you in your purpose and in his strength. So we begin by joining in the praise and worship of the angels this morning and we join with David, the man asked for God's own heart, and we say, praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Bless you, friends. Bless you.